Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to work in sports radio and TV? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 112 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Wednesday, May 23rd, 2018, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America Monday through Friday with a brand new show on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available right after that broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on Wednesday night. On iTunes, under the Bridge Sports Podcast, or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to the bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of the bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. Derek Jeter, a husband, father, part owner of the Miami Marlins, former baseball player, and at one time, one of the most sought-after bachelors in the history of New York City. We paid homage to the captain around this time last year, and since the Jeters were spotted in public with their daughter for the first time this past week, it's worth a reminder of just how successful of a bachelor Derek Sanderson Jeter once was. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Read Like Real News. Derek Jeter was one of the greatest players in New York Yankees history and retired after 20 seasons in pinstripes with a laundry list worth of accomplishments. From individual successes to overall team glory, the captain's time with the Bronx Bombers will long be remembered as one of the greatest dynasties in baseball history. But as impressive as the dynasty was on the field, so too was the dynasty that Jeter was a part of off of it. Jeter not only left the game of baseball with a legendary resume, He left the game of dating with a legendary little black book and a trail of gift packages in his wake. 
The bright lights and ruthless tabloids of New York can wreak havoc on athletes and celebrities alike, if even a toe steps out of line. Once the rumor mill gets churning, it could mean curtains for a reputation. In a social media-fueled world, the social lives of athletes are well documented, either by the tabloids or by themselves. But even when Derek Jeter dipped his toe into the social media waters, creating the Players' Tribune as a way for athletes to directly publish first-person stories, the skeletons that may reside in the captain's closet remain kept away. That includes his coveted dating Rolodex, with names that would even make Wilt Chamberlain sweat, that could spin a tale of romance that Nicholas Sparks could never even dream of. Chapter 1 began way back in 1996, when Jeter would win the American League Rookie of the Year and the Yankees would win their first World Series in almost two decades. He would also win the affection of Mariah Carey, then in her prime in the music world. It would be understandable to have a fall from grace after dating the Queen of Pop, but we're only just getting started. There was feelings for Laura Dutta, who won Miss Universe in 2000. There was Joy Enriquez, who briefly dated Alex Rodriguez, who reportedly was the one that introduced Joy to Derek. There was Jordana Brewster, star of As the World Turns soap opera, who broke onto the scene in the film The Fast and the Furious. There was Vanessa Manillo, former Miss Teen USA and famed host of MTV's TRL when they still played music. There were flings with Jessica Alba, Scarlett Johansson, Tyra Banks, Victoria's Secret supermodel Adriana Lima and 7th Heaven superstar, Jessica Biel. In 2008, the plot thickened, and a romance began with Minka Kelly, the star as Lila Garrity in Friday Night Lights. Jeter would win his fifth World Series in 2009, while Minka would be named Esquire's Sexiest Woman Alive in 2010. There were rumors of an engagement, but Derek's longest relationship to date unfortunately came to an end in 2011. With Jeter moving into the tail end of his playing career, would the breakup also mean his days playing the field were on a downturn as well? Don't call it a comeback. Derek finished the 2012 season with the most hits in the MLB. Around the same time, a relationship was rumored with Hannah Davis, who was featured inside the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue in 2013 at 23. She would also go on to make its cover just two years later. Love was indeed in the air, though somehow kept out of the public eye. Hannah could be seen next to Derek's parents at several Yankees games during his final season, including his final game in pinstripes, though cameras often cropped her out of the frames. The romance remained after his retirement in 2014, until Jeter was officially off the market in July two years later, when the two tied the knot closing the book of one of the grandest love stories in sports history, while also adding the final piece to the Derek Jeter dating diamond.
Sure, there were plenty of others who would come and go. Rumored to have left in a rented car with a handful of signed Derek Jeter memorabilia to remember the night by. Though assuredly a rumor, there's no arguing that when it came to dating, Derek Jeter certainly did it his way. Derek and Hannah Jeter are expecting their first child very soon, as could be seen firsthand at Derek's number retirement ceremony. Yeah, Jeets. Notably absent from those festivities this past Sunday, however, was a scorned lover who sought Derek's affection and acceptance for many years, who even went as far as to stand next to him for several hours every night at the ballpark, hoping for at least a passing glance. Instead, Alex Rodriguez spent his Sunday dining with Jennifer Lopez who surprisingly did not make it onto Derek Jeter's list. At least, not that we're aware of. I'm John Lund, for Sports News Red Like Real News. Let's take a quick break to walk around New York City. When we come back, we'll talk to someone who knows a thing or two about what it's like to work in sports radio and TV. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to the bridge. This week, we want to know, Jordan or LeBron, and why? Now to this week's guest in Chris Patola. He is the co-host for ACC Today on Sirius XM's ACC Radio, an analyst for ESPN, and a contributor for The Athletic, just to name a few. Chris has had quite the career path to get to where he is today, including a solid career playing hoops at Army, then serving five years for our country after he graduated from there, joining up with the Duke coaching staff for several years before moving on to sports radio and TV. We now work together as part of ACC Today on Sirius XM's ACC Radio, Channel 371, for those of you that want to find the show. So I've heard some of his stories through that show and have some additional background of Duke basketball being a fan of the Blue Devils. But Chris was incredibly generous with his time to go much deeper into the behind-the-scenes things of his life that has led to now. We'll chat about how he ended up playing Division I basketball and moving on to serve in the Army post 9-11, getting back into basketball and coaching at Duke, some tales from his coaching days there, transitioning then into sports media for what he does now, as well as some more off-the-cuff questions for the end of the interview. You can follow Chris on Twitter. He's at Chris underscore Spatola. That's Chris common spelling underscore common underscore S-P-A-T-O-L-A. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Chris Spatola. He is the co-host for ACC Today on Sirius XM's ACC Radio, an analyst for ESPN, a contributor for The Athletic. Chris, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? I'm good, John. It's uh, it's good to be talking to you in this capacity uh, off off of ACC today. That's right. We're on a brief vacation for the ACC baseball tournament, so I figured 
this would be a good way to keep in touch, keep the show going in a sense <laughs> on our week off. Before we get into how we became co-workers for ACC today, I wanted to turn back the clocks with you a little bit. You grew up in Massachusetts and played high school hoops for your father as the high school coach at St. Lawrence Academy, which is an interesting discussion to have with father-son dynamics when it comes to high school athletics and how they're able to handle that both on and off the court. How would you say that experience of getting to play for your dad in high school helped shape you? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think first and foremost, it... it um added another dimension to our relationship. Uh, you know, I think every son has, uh, hopefully, um, you know, some, some level of depth to their relationship with their dad. And I, I think John, you know, playing for him sort of added this annex to that relationship. And, um, you know, look, there, there were great times. There were great moments, um, that we were able to share together. Uh, there were times when it was hard. Uh, it was, it was really difficult. Um, I think he would admit he was a lot tougher on me than he was on, uh, other guys on our team. Um, at times I would resent that because I, I was the best player. Um, so it was, it was interesting, but I, I think, you know, ultimately when your, your, your best player has the back of the head coach, I think teams work the best that way. And when, you know, the head coach happens to be your dad, you're, you're always going to have his back no matter what. And so, um, I, I think, I think it worked out well. I think, uh, I think we sort of navigated it together and, um, you know, again, we got a lot to talk about as, as father, son, but, uh, we certainly have a lot to, to talk about as, as uh, player coach as well. It's pretty cool. You got to play with your younger brother, JP, as well in high school for a couple of years. Did that help with that dynamic, either with the team as a whole, with you guys getting able to play with each other or sort of able to deal with dad, I guess, in the huddle and in the locker room? Yeah, it, it definitely helped, man. It, it um, you know, because we could kind of commiserate together. Uh, we spoke the same language. We spoke the same language about uh, our dad. So it, it definitely, it changed the dynamic when he got there. And um, again, I mean, he was, he was a really, really good player. So um, the two of us to get, it made us better first and foremost to have another, another good player. But um, as far as, as handling my dad and my dad, you know, he's an old school guy. Uh, he just, he, he's, he's tough love. He's uh, you, you gotta, you gotta earn the, the affection, earn the respect. And so it, Again, it wasn't uh, it wasn't always great. It wasn't always comfortable. But you, you make a really good point. I mean, when when my brother JP got there, it was uh, we we could kind of lean on each other for that moral support. So your dad didn't try to make you guys the first version of the Ball family. Then have you go to play D one at UCLA and, and start that up? That never was brought to the table. No, it was suggested. No, it, we we had a shoe. I'm telling you, man, we had a we had a whole shoe line that we were going to throw out there, <laughs> and uh, it, you know, unfortunately, the the United States military scooped me up, and I couldn't be. I I, I went overseas, but it wasn't to Lithuania. Well, it is interesting that you technically did start that at West Point. You play with your brother again. So even though your father didn't have a handle in that, I guess that's a <laughs> sixth degree of separation we could make to 
get the ball family into this podcast and maybe get some extra clicks and listens. Isn't that how the world works now? So we'll add that to the the tags at the end of the show and, and see if people will tune in just for that brief mention of them. So playing Division One basketball was assuredly a dream of yours, as it is with most players playing in high school, the opportunity to potentially pursue playing hoops at a higher level, regardless of what level that might be. And you end up becoming recruited by Army while playing AAU, which is something that not many players have to deal with. When they're getting recruited, it's like, I'm only going here to play basketball. And of course, there's the hope that many players will only go to X college to also get a great education. But you're going to the Army to also get the training and and to be in that West Point life. How were you able to make that decision to both pursue basketball, but to also be doing so while pursuing something in the military as well. Yeah. You know, it's, um, there's a little bit of context that's important in, in my decision. Um, you know, and it doesn't necessarily make it any less, uh, of a difficult decision, but I, I decided to go to West Point pre nine 11. So, you know, nine 11 happened my senior year at West Point. Um, would I have committed to Army and it, would I have gone there if it was post 9-11 and it, it, certainly a different Army than the one I, I joined? Um, I don't know. Uh, it would have it definitely been a different decision. But, you know, look, I, I, there were other schools that recruited me. The, the one thing I will say is I, I, had a pretty, I had a pretty reasonable perspective of what my future was going to look like as it related to basketball. I mean, I, you know, I had no business playing. Uh, for all intents and pers- purposes, if you look at me, I had no no business playing Division One basketball. I was, you know, six feet tall, about 150 pounds. If I was uh, carrying two 10 pound dumbbells, I mean, I just uh, there was there was not a lot, whole lot to me. So I, I kind of had that realistic perspective, and I knew that I needed to go to some place that was going to set me up for success in the future, and. Uh, Dino Gaudio, who, who we all know from ESPN and now he's an assistant for Chris Mack at Louisville. Uh, he recruited me. Uh, he had, I, I still give him hell to this day cause it was a nice balance between giving me an idea of what the Academy was like, uh, but also eh, sugarcoating some of it. Uh, he recruited my parents very well. He sold them on the, uh, on the prestige and the pageantry and all that goes into being at West Point. Um, and so John, it was a combination of me saying, okay, this is probably a really good place to set me up for a future after basketball. But it, it was also, you know, my parents had a strong presence in my life and my dad at one point sat me down and said, look, you have to, West Point is the place to be. I mean, you have to go there and there's, there's really not another choice in this matter. So it's kind of, it was a combination of a lot of things, but, um, uh, I, I didn't like every day I was there, but man, am I lucky uh, that I made that decision to do it. So is it probably safe to say that what you had to do for the school aspect types of things, the trainings that were put into play was a little bit more difficult than the training that Dino was putting you through on the basketball court? Yeah, yeah, man, I I barely made it through there and it had nothing to do with basketball. It it really, I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, everybody sees the military side of it and and that's tough. uh, But you know, the, 
the hazing when you're a freshman, I mean, I had been yelled at before. So I, you know, it, it, the yelling and, and all that didn't bother me. The hazing didn't bother me. The, the military side of it, I was actually intrigued by it. It didn't necessarily bother me. The, uh, the academics are tough there. It's really, really a tough, and there are no concessions made for athletes. Uh, at least there weren't when I was there. Um, to, to the extent that you took different classes or anything like that. Um, so it was, it was tough. And then, you know, it's a regimented lifestyle. I mean, you, you, you know, I'd get on the phone on a Friday night and call some of my friends from, from back at home and, or, or wherever they were at their college, their civilian college. And, um, you know, they're out going to a party or getting ready to go to a party. And I'm, I'm sitting there in the barracks, uh, in my uniform, so it was tough. I mean, I did. There were a lot of days, John, there were a lot of mornings when I woke up at 530 in the morning wanting to leave. I, I didn't want to be there anymore. I hated it. And um, and again, I had strong parents who uh, you know, preached loyalty and, and I had made a commitment to West Point. I had made a commitment to be there. And um, and and ultimately, you know, toughing it out was really the the ultimate option. And so fortunately, I made it through. It was uh, it was very close, though. In the end, my friend, it was uh, it was not a given that I would uh, be a West Point graduate. So we do this on our show, and I'll do this here, even though I don't really like hearing my own voice on my own show. <laughs> this is a point to at least let people know how you did both on the court and then what happened quickly after the court. Not too bad in the Patriot League, sir. I don't know what you're talking about, not deserving to play Division One. because if people are to read the bio that is held for your career, sixth all-time leading scorer with more than 1,500 points at the Academy, 15th in Patriot League history, the school's all-time leading free-throw shooter, three straight seasons leading the team, and served as the team captain as a senior and played in 111 career games. Not too shabby, at least as that bio leads everyone to believe. But hey, I mean, when your kids continue to get older, that's something that you can continue to sort of push in front of them. Like, yo, dad wasn't too bad. I can take you out back and probably drain 10 at the line before you guys can. So <laughs> I'll always have that going for me. So then, as you mentioned, 9-11 happens when you're a senior. You then go on to serve for five years in the United States Army as a battery commander and executive officer. During the duties as captain, you were awarded the Joint Service Commendation Medal for Exceptional Performances during Operation Iraqi Freedom and the Army Commendation Medal for Outstanding Performance as Company Commander. So for starters, of course, thank you for your service and thank you for everything that you were able to do. And I'm just curious to know through that experience, and you mentioned how difficult it was just on the school side of things and having to go in from the day in and day out things that you face in the classroom and on the court, but then having to go into difficulties in, I guess what would be referred to as real life, real life circumstances, real life consequences. Through that experience, what do you think was the lowest point in it, the biggest challenge that you had to overcome? What was the biggest hurdle that you say you had to get through to get through that and to get on to the next chapter and what would be your career? You know, there's is a lot. I mean, it's, you know, you spend um, over a year in Iraq and I was, I was newly married. Um, so I, you know, I was going to have to spend a year away from my wife at a young age. Um, that, that was the first hurdle. It, it was sort of understanding that this is the lifestyle and this is what deploying 
uh, to, for, you know, going to combat is about and, um, you know, having to be away from loved ones, uh, in service of your country is, um, you know, it's certainly a, a, a worthy calling, um, but it's tough. You know, that was, that was the first thing, um, you know, there's a lot of, of moments where you want to feel sorry for yourself. And it, it, it's I think there's no better gift for somebody who's trying to make their way in this world to to really be able to get over that hurdle of feeling sorry for yourself. You know, at, at some point, you got to pick yourself up and say, OK, this is the hand I've been dealt. Now, how do I move forward in the best way that I can? And so that was, you know, each morning I woke up. Uh, in Baghdad, Iraq, you kind of have to see, you know, my, I, there were moments where I'd say, man, I just wanted to go to West Point and play basketball. And, and now all of a sudden here I am in Baghdad, Iraq in, you know, having mortars lobbed into, uh, our, our area of operation. And, and, you know, it's, you got to get over those moments of feeling sorry for yourself. And, you know, the, the other, I think ultimately through all of that, when you can sort of get through the, you know, this is, this is kind of where I'm at, man, this really stinks. You, you, you understand that th there is something incredibly noble and there may be nothing more rewarding I've done in my life than to, to, to give my, myself up for selfless service and to say, I'm in the service of others. Um, you know, to, to, to look to your left and your right and know that you're, uh, serving with your, your brothers of in arms and, and that, you know, I'd, I'd lay myself down for them just like they would for me. And, and there's there's no team that I've ever been on, John, that that had that type of commitment. And you can try to express that to sports teams or other teams that I've been a part of. But there's just there's nothing like the military. And I think it's, it's one of the reasons that we have the best military and um, that sort of loyalty and, and determination and all of those things. Um, have made me better. So again, you know, West Point was tough and combat was tough, but um, I, man, I am so glad that I did it because it, uh, it's why I'm sitting here talking, talking to you right now. How did you then end up at Duke when you were done with your service? Yeah, you know, I, I knew I wanted to do five years and in the military, which is the commitment you have to give to West Point by going there. Uh, thanks to you fine taxpayers who pay our way through. Uh, we got to give it back. So we do the five years. And I knew uh, once I got back from Iraq, I had about eight years left on my five-year commitment, and I knew I didn't want to stay in. Uh, I didn't really know if, if coaching was something I wanted to do, um, but I, I had a relationship with Coach K, and he had a, a graduate assistant spot on his staff that uh, was open. And so we started talking. He said, do you want to be in coaching? Do you want to be a coach? I said, you know, I, I don't know, but I'd love to come work for you and, and be a part of Duke and kind of see what that world is about and learn the game of basketball from you. Um, so that was kind of how I ended up there. Uh, it was, you know, several phone calls and um, and he had a spot. And, you know, I'm, as you know, my, my wife is, is uh, his youngest daughter. Uh, so it was an opportunity to. I had dragged her out to Oklahoma and to all these other places that the military sent us. And so it was an opportunity for her to get back home and, um, and be with her family. And, and then an opportunity for me to, to be a part of, of a great basketball program. So it, it, um, that's kind of how it evolved. I was going to save this for the final segment, which we'll get to, but maybe a, a nice 
addition here is if you and Jamie have a good story of how you guys met and how you guys ended up in a relationship that led to marriage. You know, I met Jamie when she was 14 years old. Uh, my dad, uh, as, as we talked about, was my high school coach and, and, um, and, and he just had a lot of respect for coach K. It was, you know, it was, I was in high school. It was during that period where they had made that string of final fours and had won, you know, the back-to-back national championships. And so there were a lot of coaches who were a fan of coach K, uh, but my ba- dad being one of them and, he wanted to work Coach K's basketball camp, and so he drove my brother and da- my brother and I down there, like three consecutive summers to go to the the Duke basketball camp. And my wife uh, happened to be working at the concession stand, and clearly I was uh, more focused on picking up girls than I was on learning the game of basketball. But um, you know, we just kind of struck up a, a conversation one day and then we struck up a friendship. And uh, for a long time, I, our kids will never understand this, but we were pen pals and we'd write letters. And I grew up, you know, as you said, I was uh, uh, grew up in the Northeast. And so we'd write letters. And then, you know, when I got to West Point, we ended up kind of doing the long distance relationship thing and then ultimately got married. But I've known her. We've known each other for a long, long, long time. And it's crazy. I met her at uh, at, at her dad's basketball camp. That's a great story. And maybe one of the last of the pen pal relationships. So even a better <laughs> one to get to tell your kids about, because I don't even know if they'll ever have to write a letter in general. So it's, nope. it's great that that was able to keep you guys going and sustain that and, and help in getting to where you ended up. So you end up with Duke and you end up on Coach K's coaching staff, albeit not at an assistant coach level, but still on the staff nonetheless. And what's interesting for Coach K, as you know, and as Duke fans know, is that he usually employs former players as part of his basketball coaching staff. And they've been guys that have played before, that have been around the program, something that you were unable to do by going to Army, though you do share the distinction of having been at Army. So maybe that helped in a sense. I mean, we could. that's another sixth degree of separation, both being from Army. So there is that, even though it wasn't at Duke. Did you feel in the early going that maybe you had to prove yourself as a coach and and maybe show to people that you didn't just get handed the position in a sense because you were family with Coach K and, and that you could do the coaching aspect of things and did know the game of basketball? Yeah, I, I, there's no question about it. And I, and I think the guys who were on the staff at the time, um, Johnny Dawkins, Chris Collins, and Steve Wojciechowski, uh, I, you know, they didn't know what to think of me at, at the start. Uh, they didn't really, they knew my story and knew my background, uh, knew that I had played and all that. But uh, like you said, it was a tight knit uh, coach K staffs have always been tight knit circles of Duke guys. And to have uh, a, his son-in-law and B, uh, uh, an army grad uh, join the staff. I, I, those guys were, I think a little bit, dubious of of my place there and so yeah I mean I there, there was a part of that I mean I, the thing is John I, I've never gone out of my way to do that like I've always believed that my work will speak for itself and you know I mean I still deal with that in in other walks of life I mean people just assume that I've landed where I have because of that um and, and I'm always confident that when they they take the time to to listen to my work or uh, when it, you know, when it came to the coaching, if they saw the hours that I would put in or the product that I would put out to, you know, 
depending on whatever the job I had to do was, I always knew that 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 would carry the day. Um, but yeah, I mean, there were some awkward moments early on where, um, you know, those guys would, would test and kind of get, try to feel me out. And likewise, I'd try to feel that, feel them out where they were coming from. And, um, so there, there were definitely moments of that. I, I give coach K a lot of credit though, cause he, he handled it great. Uh, we had a very separate relationship and still do, uh, you know, when I'm, I'm playing the media role and he's. Uh, and, and he's the Duke coach, and it was the same when I was on his staff. I mean, there was there was a clear separation between family and and working for him. And and I had kind of, you know, I had kind of been through that having played for my dad, where we made that separation. Um, so I had actually been through it. Uh, but I give Coach K a lot of credit because he he was able to make that separation. And I think, um, you know, from from where I stood, allayed some of the. Uh, thoughts of of those guys on his staff who were you know again probably dubious of my role I usually can never figure out what a title for an assistant coach is when it corresponds to the roles that they have and I know you have a couple titles while at Duke but I figured it might be easier to just ask in layman's terms what your roles were for those seven or eight years you were with the Duke program in general some of the different things you did on the coaching staff for the team yeah, I mean, I was. I, I he hired me as a grad assistant, and then um, after my first year there, Johnny Dawkins got hired at Stanford, and he took uh, a guy named Mike Schrage, who was the director of operations at Duke at the time. He took him with him to be an an assistant at Stanford, uh, and so Coach bumped me up to the director of operations role, uh, which carries a, a whole host of things. And like you said, the, the way that the titles go in, in college hoops, um, you know, the director of ops are, are usually basketball guys, uh, guys who played or guys who uh, want to be coaches. And, and it's sort of an entry level spot. Um, you know, I got lucky because uh, on a couple fronts, a coach K was doing USA basketball during my time there. And so he would bring us, uh, you know, uh, as his Duke staff, he would bring us to be a part of the USA basketball experience. So, you know, I got to be a, a, a court coach uh, for a couple of the of the years for the USA basketball thing. Um, and then, you know, director of operations typically aren't allowed to recruit. Uh, but because Coach K was doing the USA basketball thing, we were able to get a waiver where I was able a couple of those summers able to go out on the road and get involved with recruiting and and learn that world. So, um, you know, it was, they, he was good. I mean, coach always knew that I, I, I was interested in becoming a coach and he was going to try to expose me to a lot of different areas about running a program and what coaching was like and what recruiting was like. And so, um, and because of his USA basketball role, I was able to, to really dabble into a lot of different things. And then Wojo and Chris Collins were, were great with, um, you know, kind of, again, exposing me to, to that world and, and, and giving, showing me a lot of different sides to what it meant to be a coach. Well, I can't give you too much credit for 2010 as far as the recruiting goes, since they were all old <laughs> at the time, right. unfortunately. So we'll have to move past that and go a little bit deeper, I guess, into the years. And that's interesting in a sense that, as we know, the Duke program has changed quite drastically just on paper of its rosters compared to the 2010 team, which was seniors and juniors and familiar faces to when they last won in 2015. And it was, 
younger guys, one and duns, the the trio and what they were able to do with a young Grayson Allen and our friend of the show, Quinn Cook, leading the way. It was a different team, and, and it's been different teams now with Coach K because the recruiting is different and the way that college basketball is, in a sense, is different. Did you notice that change on the recruiting side of things toward your latter years as far as going more from recruiting for the future than recruiting for, say, that season, which is sort of what Coach K has evolved into now? Yeah, you know, it started to change while I was still there. Uh you know, we, we basically got to a point uh, towards the end of, you know, I, I want to say like 2008, it was, it was uh, towards the end of Greg Paulus's time there. And, and we had, we had, you know, coach had had a clear philosophy of wanting to, to get guys who he felt like were going to be in the program for uh, several years. And, you know, we just felt like we weren't getting guys who could compete against those best players coming out of out of high school. And, you know, 2010 was an exception. I mean, and, and, and I will I will never forget that year because what what that group did was it, it was an exceptional moment. Um, but even before that team won in 2010, like we had tried to go after John Wall. Uh, but we, we clearly had a, a change in philosophy. Like we wanted to try to go get these guys that we knew were, were probably going to be the one and dones. Um, so that, you know, there was a period we tried to get uh, John wall. We tried to get a kid named Kenny Boynton out of, out of Florida. He ended up going to Florida, uh, but we finally struck gold and we kind of got lucky because we pivoted from Boynton after he committed to Florida. We pivoted to this kid uh, who Kevin Boyle, who at the time was the head coach at St. Pat's, uh, this kid named Kyrie Irving that he had, uh, who Boyle told us was going to be better than Jason Williams. And so we ended up uh, getting really involved with Kyrie. Really, he was a good player, uh, but really before he blew up. And, you know, I think Duke and, and Coach K were a great fit for Kyrie. And so once we got Kyrie and then once Kyrie, even in, even in the eight games that he played before he got hurt with how loud he played and how good he was. And the fact that we have won the national championship. And then I think the USA basketball started to take a, a really good optical effect on the program. Uh, then we just started, we started to get it, and, but they came in ones to start. Like it was Kyrie, then it was Austin, then it was Jabari. Right. And then all of a sudden, then they started doing it in bulk and and um, and and just started getting guys, you know, that team that you talked about in 2015. And um, and it's just, you know, these things go cyclical. Like there was a period my when I first got to Duke where Duke really wasn't cool. You know, it wasn't a program that was had that, you know, was real sexy. And and then Kyrie kind of helped that. And then Austin and then the program through USA Basketball. And then you start that team in 2015, it, it became really sexy. And, and I think that's just kind of how these things go when you're recruiting high school kids. I'm sure Jaleel Okafor would love to hear that we, in a way, called him sexy. So hopefully he's listening or maybe his father's listening because we know how big of a fan that he was. But that team was fun to watch and it was fun to have all that come together. And I'm sure it was fun for you, even though you weren't technically on the sidelines for it, seeing that program develop into something that was successful and knowing what goes into that sort of success 
this will be a little bit loaded of a question because the list is probably endless, but is there a game or a moment that immediately stands out to you from your time on the Duke coaching staff, or that could even go into USA basketball, but I'm sure having Kobe and guys like that, as far as stories go, you can, again, we'll have another podcast just for those, but for Duke experiences, is there one that stands out to you as one that you'll at least enjoy telling for the next many years? Well, I mean, you know, obviously that game against Butler, uh, not to take the low-hanging fruit, but that game against Butler was was incredible. Um, you know, to to again to to think that 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 group, I mean, we never expected to to win a national championship with that group, and and I, you know that whole journey, John, is it really it it will resonate with me forever because you know that group. The, the John Shire, uh, the Brian Zubek, the Lance Thomas, that group, they went through, you know, this is the whole, in this era of one and done, that's why I say it, it, something like that may never happen again, just because, I mean, that group lost to VCU in the tournament when they were freshmen. Their sophomore year, we lost in the second round, uh, almost lost to Belmont in the first round. We got by them, we lost to West Virginia and just got absolutely pounded and beat up in the second round. And then, uh, their junior year, they lost to Villanova in the Sweet 16. And then, you know, their senior year, we end up winning. And I, I will always remember, like, the Butler game stands out in that year, that 2010. But we played West Virginia in the Final Four that year. And this is two years after they had just absolutely physically manhandled us and beat us, upset us in the, in the, uh, in the second round. And in the lead-up to that, that Final Four, they had, you know, they had been talking some smack. I mean, they had, they had said some stuff in the papers and we were posting it all in the locker room and, and I'll never forget how resolute and how confident our guys were. And they just said, coach, we, we got this, like, we're, 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 we're going to be fine. And, and we ended up just pounding West Virginia in that final four. And that was, uh, it was sad at the end of that game Deshaun Butler actually tore his ACL and it was probably never the same, but um, as much as that, that Butler game, certainly stands out. I'll never forget that West Virginia game. And that was kind of the game where I said, man, this group has really come full circle uh, because there were a lot of guys left over from that West Virginia team that had pounded us two years before. Um, and to do what we did in the final four and then to win a national championship that, that year will always, uh, I'll never forget. Something on that year, if your kids are playing later in life and they get blown off the court or off the field and the coaches want to yell at them for their performance, will you suggest just getting ice cream sundaes and taking an easy <laughs> the game afterwards? Yeah, man. How about that? Yeah, I, I absolutely will. I mean, it just, you know, that's one of the, I, I have the opportunity to speak to a lot of different groups and, and that's one of the stories I'll always tell because he... Uh, we had gotten blown out, blown out uh, on the road at NC State. And we, we got back over to Cameron that night and we were sitting there as a coaching staff. And, and Coach Gabe, you know, to his credit, he's got all these wins and all these t titles. And, and he still he, he has assistant coaches because he he uses them like he wants their input. And so he kind of looked at all of us and said, what do you? what should we do? Like, what do you get? I, you know, what, what are we going to do with this team? Because the following Saturday we had to go to Clemson and it was going to be college game day. And they had blown us out by 30 the year before. So we lose to NC state. 
we got to turn around. We got to play Clemson on the road. And this was when Clemson, I mean, they, they had it rolling. Oliver Purnell, they would press you 40 minutes. I mean, they were, they were really, really good. And, um, and we were coming up off a loss. And so, you know, Coach K says, what do you guys want to do? And, and so, you know, young assistant coaches and those guys, you know, Wojo and Nate James and Chris Collins had all played for Coach K. And so they wanted to tear all the stuff out of the locker room. And, and you know, they don't deserve to, to wear the Duke gear and all that. And, um, and, you know, we talked. We honestly, he didn't say a word for about 30 minutes. And... He finally, you know, we kind of go back and forth. And after about 30 minutes, Coach K says, all right, I've, I've heard enough. Here's what we're going to do. And, you know, it's one of these lessons that that tone matters. Like, you know, everybody has, he's, has this picture of him as this red-faced coach on the sideline. And, you know, he cusses a lot and, and all this. And, but he's a master at, at knowing the right tone at the right time. And this was one of those moments. He said, look, here's what we're going to do. Like, we're – First of all, I, I want you, and he looked down to the table to me, he said, I want you to have an ice cream sundae bar in there on uh, when we come in for practice tomorrow. And he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to watch tape. We're going we're gonna to watch some, some, uh, some feedback from this NC State game. And then we're going to move on to Clemson, and we're going to scout Clemson. And I'm not going to raise my voice above this level, he said, because – what they expect is for us to come in and do what you guys just want us to do. And he said, and they're not going to hear a word we say, but if we come in and we talk to them with a low tone, if we get united and we figure out how we're going to go up and beat Clemson, then we're going to have a much, much better shot of winning that game. And sure enough, we did. We went up, we won by about 15 or 20. And again, it's one of those, one of those moments where he's, he's one of the best. And, uh, and I'll never forget because that was uh, that that changed our season. I mean, that that honestly changed our season. That moment where we kind of came together, we we ended up doing this thing where we locked arms every time we got together as a team, and and that that changed that changed our season. So, did you actually have to go get the ice cream, or was that task put on somebody else? Because I'd love to just see you late at the store with like three buckets of ice cream in the car, and people are like, is that? Is that Christmas? Well, here's the thing. Duke? Here's the thing. We 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 have uh, we have an army of managers uh, who who can kind of make those things. Like all of a sudden, you say, "Hey, look, here's what we need. Uh, make this happen." Right. So I did not. I was not in Kroger or uh, whatever your grocery store of choice is actually purchasing the ice cream. But uh, but we executed it, man. We made it happen, and uh, and our guy. You should have seen the guys. I mean, it just like. What, what the hell's going on here? Is this a, they thought we were like, you know, some of them didn't want to touch it. They thought it was a, a prank. You know, they thought it was like a trap. Like they would start getting a bowl of ice cream and we'd jump out, of, out from behind the lockers and say, aha, you guys are soft. Now the only time you have to get ice cream is in dad mode. So now the task is, is something that you're still doing, just maybe not as much in bulk as it would have been exactly. if you had to do it then. So also for Duke, being a coach is great on the court, but there's also things that the coaching staff looks forward to semi off the court. And you guys often get the opportunity to participate in alumni versus coaches games, coaches versus coaches games. You get to get back on the floor and show you still got it. How competitive did those 
types of games get because I'm sure at the time, I mean, you could have been going up against like Nolan Smith, now coach, of course, but then just an alumni, J.J. Redick. Those guys are probably coming back, and you had to still prove you had it from those Army days, right? Yeah, we, uh, yeah, they get really competitive. And I, I am proud to say, and we had Quinn Cook on the other day on our ACC Today show, and uh, he brought up that I was, the, I was the one who was the best, I was in the best shape of all the coaches uh, because, you know, Collins, Collins was a volume shooter. And, you know, he's a little bit older than, than I am. Wojo uh, had like had already uh, an ACL tear. And I mean, he, his body was was starting to break down. So I was the guy who had to run basically the, the laps. I, I was the guy with the uh, I'd, I'd pick up the defensive matchup and all that. I did most of the running. Yeah, but, I saw um, an interview for it. Jeff said you were the speed guy on the team. So running yeah, up with the transition, yeah. you need one of those on the team. Yeah, yeah. Chris Collins, in his condescending way, would call me speedy, uh, which I, I was not a fan of. But they would, man. They'd get competitive. And we, you know, a lot of times we'd play against the managers, but um, sometimes, you know, the walk-ons, we'd, we'd, we'd play against them. Um, you know, it's funny. The, the year that Kyrie got hurt and we were talking about bringing him back, you know, like would he, would he come back? Should he come back? What would he look like? Um, he actually hopped in on some of our games and and would play with us and um, and he even stuck around after he had declared for the draft. Um, you know, he stuck around and, and would play and and so we you'd get some guys coming back and the games would be good. Yeah, the games would uh, you'd have to you'd have to you'd have to keep in shape to uh, to be able to to compete. What made you decide to switch gears all the way from Duke? going into sports media, starting up sports radio, starting sports broadcasting, moving on from what you had at Duke to pursue that new chapter? Yeah, you know, it was tough. I mean, you know, people think I'm crazy leaving that that job. Um, I, I felt a little bit like Dave Chappelle walking away from $50 million for, for you know, own, own personal reasons. Um, I, I just, you know, coaching wasn't for me. And, you know, part of it was the lifestyle. Part of it was... Um, you know, I'm somebody who's lived in one place my, my, my whole life before I got to the army. Um, I didn't want to be somebody who, who was, you know, moving his family all over the place. Uh, once I got hired, uh, you know, uh, to be honest, it, my exposure to the recruiting world, uh, what was, it was a disillusionment, uh, to some degree. Um, and we're seeing some of that play out on the, the national stage, uh, just sort of how ugly it can get um, in certain places. And um, and so I just kind of looked at, at you know, you, you sometimes you sit back and you look at where you want to be 10 years from now. And, and coaching just wasn't it just wasn't moving me like that. Um, I felt I, I, I there was more that I wanted to do. And and. Uh, there was also, I wanted to be, you know, we were going to, my wife and I were, we had just started having kids and I wanted to be with my kids. So I wanted to figure out something job wise where, uh, I could stick around the game. I could be a part of the game of basketball, but, um, I could also have a pretty good quality of life and, and raise a family and kind of be here in North Carolina and, and, and live our life. And so, uh, I had gone to coach. 
uh, the year before I left. So after the, the 2011 season, I went to coach and kind of told him how I was feeling. And he said, you know, I, I get it. I understand. Why don't you give it another year? See how you feel after that. Uh, so I went through the 2012 season and, uh, and after the, after the season kind of felt the same way, just, just, you know, coaching wasn't going to be what I wanted to do long-term. So, um, ended up, uh, figuring out some ways to, uh, to get into the media, uh, CBS Sports Network was kind enough to, to hire me uh, to do some some basketball games for them. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, you mentioned CBS Sports. There's Pac-12, ESPNU, regular ESPN. I believe Turner Sports is in there. I know you called Patriot League games for a while, so got to go back to your roots with that. And hopefully, you know, tell some of the players where you still stood on the top 10 or top 15 rankings list, just in case they didn't know who you were already. Now with Sirius XM and just getting able to experience both the television and the radio side from where you started as a player up until now, is there a challenging moment or something that you felt that you had to overcome getting up to here? Because now we know that if you're doing a three hour show alone, sometimes you have to have hard opinions. You have to have hard takes. You have to drive the show for three hours and not necessarily rely on callers to do so. What has been the experience like for you in getting the voice that you now have, the experience that you now have and being able to do this now in the next step of your career? Yeah, you know, it's a great question, and it's it's constantly evolving. I mean, it's, um, you know, I'm by no means a veteran at this. I've had, first of all, really good people help me along the way. Um, you know, Jay Billis, for example, has become a very good friend, and um, there has been nobody more selfless in, in sort of helping me, uh, you know, develop that voice that you're talking about. Um, you know, Seth Greenberg has, has been another guy who's done that. Jay Will. I mean, guys that I work with at ESPN have been so good at, at sort of helping me along the way uh, do that. Um, you know, it, it's I, I've I always told myself, John, that that I will, you know, this business demands that you be strong in your opinion. And so I, I never felt like I would back down and it didn't matter who I was talking about. I mean, I have taken very strong opinions um, on Duke, on Coach K, on Grayson Allen. Uh, I've taken strong opinions on, uh, on Northwestern on, you know, so I've taken strong opinions there as, as I've taken strong opinions on, on other programs and on other topics. Um, but I, I always said to myself, I will be strong in my opinion, but I will never play a character. I will never say something that I don't earnestly believe. Now, I, I may throw some hot sauce onto it to make it entertaining and to make it fit for either radio or TV, um, but I will never make something up. I will never speak uh, or say something that I don't genuinely believe. Uh, and so that's kind of how I've, I've used that as, as my rule of thumb. I've, have I stuck my foot in my mouth at times? Absolutely. Uh, and that's why repetitions in this business are, are incredibly important. Um, I've been blessed to be able to use the written word. Um, you know, Seth Davis hired me to, to, to be a part of the athletic has been uh, incredible. So I've been able to express opinions through the written word. I've been able to express my opinions, like you said, through the radio on television. Um, it, it's, you know, as, as long as you're informed, as long as you know what the hell you're talking about, um, and you, I think, can can speak with an opinion that is uh, is both strong and, and I think 
um, an opinion that people will consume. And so that's kind of how I've, I've sort of tried to navigate my way through this thing. And we're a couple months along here with ACC today on ACC Radio. So you've gone from more of a national show to a more sports-specific and league-specific show and collegiate-specific show and get to do that with Jack Collinsworth. Though while Young has one of the best radio voices I've ever heard in my life and can definitely hold his own on radio. He does an amazing job both with that and with television. And you guys click very well and have continued to do so since you guys were first doing a show with ESPNU. How would you say the experience has been so far getting to have a show on a brand new channel, sort of get to take this off from the ground and, and make it your own and be able to see it grow and continue to do this on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it's been fun. I mean, you, you know, and I don't say this cause you're, you're the interviewer here, but we have a great team. I mean, I, you know, I've always, and it's, it's, I have, I had a great family growing up. Uh, I was part of a great team with the United States military, uh, United States military, uh, was part of a great team at Duke. And, and so I've, I've always tried to uh, surround myself with great people. I think, you know, success and whatever it is you do is a direct byproduct of the people that you're, that you're with and around and, and the teams that you're on. And so we have, we have a great, you know, the four of us and then Baz overseeing it and Shane Conley. I mean, we have a really good team. Uh, they, they hired really good people to launch these league channels, uh, first and foremost. Um, and so it's been fun. I mean, you know, look, I don't know what the listenership is yet. Um, I think it is growing. And I think your point about uh, us having a good show, which I believe we do, um, I think ultimately once Sirius gets people to those league channels, I think once, you know, the shows will ultimately keep them there. Um, and ours is, is certainly no different. I, I Jack's great. I mean, Jack and I, go actually go way back even before ACC today we we did a, a show called the student section on uh, ESPNU radio for a couple years and um and and we come at it from different angles I mean like you said he's he's a lot younger than I am um although I'm only 39 so I'm not exactly old but <laughs> um I, I think we we come at it from different lenses and different perspectives uh but I think it it plays I think it does play well together and I think it's um, you know, we've got a nice mix of uh, being very ACC specific, but then we'll also get into some other topics which are you know, both meant to uh, entertain and, and I think uh, express opinions. So I, I think it's been good, man. I've, we've, we've, had, uh, we've had a good team and it's been a lot of fun. I'll be even quicker with this last segment since looking at the clock, you've been incredibly generous with your time. This is a segment called Easier Pass with some quick hitting questions that you could pass on, but I think there'll be ones that you enjoy. And the first one right off the bat is what is your favorite Chappelle show segment? Oh man, that, that's a tough one. Cause that's my dude. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the very first one they had, the Clayton Gr- uh, Grigsby, um, what is still, I mean, ultimate classic, the, any of the Charlie Murphy's, um, true, true, uh, true Hollywood story, uh, Charlie Murphy ones. The Rick James one is, is obviously the classic, but those are outstanding. Um, and then the, the, um, what was it called? The racial draft. Uh, like that is, that goes down in the, in the ultimate, uh, Chappelle show. That show was way ahead of its time. And that dude, 
Um, man, I've told I've told you many times. I, I that that guy is in a in a world of spin. That guy is speaking truth, and he keeps it real. And he's also incredibly intelligent. Uh, so that's that's my guy. That show was awesome. We had a submitted question from the producer of ACC today, Mr. Tony <laughs> Scarangella. He asked for this segment. If you had to put together a concert bill all time, who you would put on that? Since we know how much you enjoy rap music and assuredly concerts, what a, a top list would be involving something like that? So first and foremost, Dr. Dre and Snoop are there. I mean, they, they absolutely have to be there. Um, Bob Marley has to be there. Uh, I am a, I'm a huge reggae guy and, um, and Bob Marley is the, is obviously the, the standard, the pinnacle, uh, in reggae music. Um, so, so he, he's got to be there. Um, I, I am a Tom Petty. Uh, I've got, uh, the first channel, the first preset on my Sirius XM radio is not ACC radio. It is the Tom Petty channel. So he's, uh, he's got to be there. Um, and then I'll, I'll give you a little off the beaten path group that I love. Um, that would, uh, it's an eclectic mix by the way, but, uh, I don't know if you've heard of a group called Guster, but, uh, they are one of my, uh, all time favorite groups. And, um, and so they have to be there as well. We'll definitely have to get some Tom Petty into the rotation for starters. Once we come back no next week at the show. So in your primes, yourself or jj reddick at the free throw line who are you taking i'm taking me out of a hundred in your prime how many do you think you'd make 95 that's that's about where i'd have you i think college was what 90 percent, 89 for your career yeah. somewhere like that on a good day 95 yep. is doable you could you could still do that and get one of those Steph curry viral videos going of 39 John, year old do, former army i could grad. do <laughs> I could do 95 today. Excellent. Well, you know what? I'm going to maybe have a talk with our producer. We might be able to get some eyes on this. Now that Jack is a big TV <laughs> star, he could probably get a hand on a camera, and we can figure that out. So also, to correlate with Primes, you're now writing for The Athletic. Your wife, Jamie, has also co-authored two books. Who's the better writer in the Spatola family? She is the better writer. Absolutely. So we have, to, we have to give her a plug. We give her plugs on ACC Today. Also have to get some plugs on the bridge as well. In sports radio, do you have a hottest take that you enjoy the most, as in one that you enjoy getting people riled up over? You don't necessarily have to give it, but just the subject matter that is best for sports radio or even television. Man, yeah. Well, there's... Okay, so... We don't get many calls yet on our show, but when I do Mad Dog Radio, there are two subjects that it does not matter if you if you even touch it, if you even just touch it, your the phone lines are are going to light up. Um, and we've seen it unfold here. Over now, I I I don't go there because I think it's it's and you know this about me, but the sort of Greatest of all time, Jordan, LeBron, and the guy, I'll tell you the guy who drives calls more than it is Kobe Bryant. I mean, like if you just mention Kobe, the phone lines are going to light up. 
Um, and then the other one is is anything related to Colin Kaepernick, and it gets ugly with the calls. But, I mean, those two, uh, you, you know, you go back a little bit. Deflategate used to be one of those where you could just bring it up. If, if you're, like, getting bored with your show and you want some calls, just bring up Deflategate. Uh, Colin Kaepernick will do that. And, uh, and then anything related to Jordan, LeBron, Kobe, automatic, you're going to get calls. You got a chance to go to the NBA draft combine and get to chat with some of the prospects that were there along with the five Duke players that ended up getting to attend from this past season and asked all of them, Coach K fashions himself as both a jokester and a dancer and then asked them to rate how you would view him as both. So I must ask you what you would rate him as both a prankster slash jokester and as a dancer as well. I would give him a seven on a scale of one to 10 as a, as a funny man. He is funny and he, and, and he's, he's really smart. So he's kind of got that rate, you know, that razor dry wit that can come out pretty quickly on you. Um, he's very good off the cuff. So I, sometimes he tries too hard and he tries especially with the players, he'll try to relate too hard with how funny he's trying to be. So he, I dock him on that. So he's about a seven. And then as a dancer, you know, standing up, I don't think I, you know, he's probably a four, but he, he's, he's a very good sit down dancer. So like if he's sitting in a chair, he can kind of get the upper body moving in a way that would make him probably a five or a six as a dancer. He's a very good sit-down dancer. Well, he's got a new hip. He's got new knees, new back. He's ready to go in his older True. age. He's, he's a True. brand new man underneath that suit. So I guess people want to know, too, regarding Coach K with the hair. Is, is that all natural up there? You know what? I, I have asked him that, and he says that it is. Uh, he is starting to gray. Like, if you kind of get up close to him, he is starting to gray around the edges. But, um, I, you know, I still don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know what to believe. But he, he is very emphatic that uh, it is all natural. All right, the last one for you. When you're sitting down for game night, what's the game that you know you most likely win that you're the most competitive in could be a board game or even a video game, but childhood games, when you're sitting down as a family, what do you take pride in that you'll probably most likely hopefully will win? Uh, Uno is, is one of them. <laughs> um, I am, I am a monster at Uno and I'm, I'm very good at saving my wilds so that, you know, I don't get, I don't get stuck at the end. Um, so Uno was, was definitely one of them. Um, and, uh, let's see, you know, I was a big hearts player too. I was, I was, I was huge at hearts and could shoot the moon pretty regularly for those, uh, who, who play hearts. So I, uh, I'm a big, we're, we're very big, uh, board game players in, in our house. Um, but I am much, I am very partial to the cards and, uh, spades, hearts, anything related, gin, rummy, all that stuff. But I, uh, if there's one game, John, that I used to just crush, it, it was Uno. I dominate. So we know what ACC today would be in store for if we were in North Carolina for the show golf, of course, before the show, and then Uno yeah. to close things out. That sounds like a pretty yeah. good night to me. Yeah, damn right. Yes, that'd be awesome. So I'll attach everything where people can find your work. And I will also add that 
the clock is ticking. I think we'll be able to find you on Instagram soon enough, right? Probably Chris underscore Spatola. I think Jack's going to get you on there at some point, so I'll throw that out here as well. That's, Twitter is yeah. Chris underscore Spatola. Most likely Instagram will follow suit with that. That's he's on me, man. He is he is all over me on getting the Instagram. So I that will be if if it happens, that will be the handle. Chris, thanks so much for your time. It was a pleasure to peel back the curtain a little bit of what you've done. It's been a pleasure to hear it from the behind the microphone, behind the scenes of just getting to do a show with you with ACC today, but to go a little bit deeper and to talk about what you've done for the country, what you've done as coach, what you've done just in basketball for sports media as well has just been a great story. And I'm glad you took some time to tell it. And I look forward to getting back with the show next week. And this was a good way to fill that void. But thanks again for dropping by. It was great. No doubt, John. Your uh, your reputation for research preceded uh, our talk tonight. You are an animal in uh, prepping Jack and I for the people we talked to on the show. And you were uh, you were unbelievable tonight. So this was this was a lot of fun. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night, and also be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dabble in the NBA, dive into Major League Baseball, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.